It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price of participation vary. Terms apply. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. How are you, Lance? Doing very, very well. How are you today? I'm doing great. We have a uh, a really wonderful chat with uh, a really accomplished guy. Law enforcement accomplished gentleman. He is a retired FBI criminal profiler. He's a writer, FBI consultant, and he's a very dynamic speaker when he talks to large crowds at conventions about uh, about crime and prevention and just what he's done in his past. He is a consultant for the hit television series Criminal Minds, and he's part of the trifecta of Francie Hakes, Bobby Chacon, and Jim Clemente. And one of his podcasts is called Real Crime Profile. Another one is called Best Case, Worst Case. So if you haven't heard of those, you might want to subscribe to those now on Stitcher or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your content. And what we talk about with him, what we really wanted to get to, and and we he gets warmed up uh, as we get into the interview, but we keep talking about the type of person who would do something like this to Mora had she been abducted or if she was abducted that night in 2004. And is it somebody who was a transient? Is it someone who was local? And he came into this interview with limited information, and that was a good thing because we were able to feed him information as he was asking, and he didn't have any preconceived notions. He had a very unbiased view of Mora's disappearance, and it was important to hear that from a law enforcement official. And knowing that he wasn't leaning in one direction or another. Yeah, the beginning of the interview kind of reminded me of our chat with Nancy Grace, where he was actually getting information. He was interviewing us, I guess, for the first 10 or 15 minutes, getting information about Maura's case, and then we kind of were able to pick his brain. Um, and I think we might have made a couple of little errors, minor errors, but uh, just understand that the questions came fast and furious. And we weren't really prepared at the time, but I think we did pretty good in answering them and, and giving him the the appropriate information. You're right. Much like the Nancy Grace interview, there was a period of time where we had to shift into another gear and, and keep up. Yeah. And But once we got into it, it, it started to flow really easily, and you could tell that he was getting excited about delivering his professional input on Moore's disappearance. Yeah, great guy, and uh, we may even get him back on at some point if uh, if we can wrangle him uh, schedule scheduling-wise. 
And real quick, just wanted to update you. If you listen to the True Crime Obsessed episode that we did just a few episodes ago, we talked about a body, some human remains that was found on the highway near where we are here in Massachusetts. And there there was a body that was found with no reported uh, pedestrians or hitchhikers. No overpass. No overpass. So it was kind of a mystery how this body got there. Um, and we have an update, Lance. And it was sort of weird because we had just talked about it and we said, oh, that's strange. We hadn't heard anything f- about this. And we had an emailer uh, fire off this link to us. And it looks like there's a solution here to 22-year-old Johannes Songdahl, whose uh, body was found on the Mass Pike on August 29th. Court documents say that Samuel Lenahan of Holyoke, Mass., is scheduled for arraignment soon. So it appears that Songdal must have jumped out of the car. Lenahan told police he thought Songdal was asleep in the back of the vehicle the whole time. And police said that they were both under the influence of drugs, so seems like a pretty straightforward case. They're under the influence of drugs for whatever reason. Songdal freaks out, jumps out, gets hit by several cars, and dies. And Lenahan never stopped. So Lenahan is being arraigned on the 21st of December in Worcester, and it will be interesting to hear what charges will be filed against him. Okay, before we play the interview, I want to tell you that we will be back at the end of the interview with Jim Clemente to kind of debrief a little bit and chat about what we learned and heard. Okay, so that'll be at the very end of the Clemente interview. And Lance, we're doing something really special for Stitcher Premium for Missing Maura Murray. Well, we get the opportunity to go back to the early episodes, which we have described to our listeners and we've talked internally about how cringeworthy they are and how we managed the information that we had at the time and whether we did it appropriately and accurately. And some of the opinions that we might have had at the time make us sort of sweat a little bit thinking about now. So we get the opportunity to go back to the important early episodes and do a sort of creator commentary over the actual interview. It's much like a director's commentary when you watch a, a you know the extras footage on a movie. So you'll be listening to the episode and then you'll hear Tim and I come in and we give our opinion about what we're talking about and deliver either a correction or a reaffirmment of what we're talking about at that time. You will want to hear that if you do like the podcast, if you have listened to those episodes. I think it is really an interesting project and really kind of a good thing that some of the some of those things are coming down offline I think and so we can kind of correct them and uh, replace it with more appropriate things and really cool of stitcher and midroll to present us with this opportunity to to go back to the early episodes and and make them as I guess socially responsible as possible and yeah. and also we get a chance to to self-efface a little bit and there's a little humor there because ultimately not surprisingly enough not everything we say in those early episodes was spot on and was properly delivered but far from it you know big thanks to stitcher for considering allowing this to happen and realizing that this is something important and entertaining and uh something that the the super fans will will really really find useful and so if you're wondering where the earlier episodes went from your podcast feed gone forever they, well, they're gone for a little while. Just kidding. They're, they're gone off the public feed, um, and they are going to be on Stitcher Premium. So you will need to subscribe to Stitcher Premium to hear those early episodes. Ad-free. Ad-free. Check it out, stitcher.com slash premium. Use promo code FRAMES for a free month off of the four ninety nine Stitcher Premium price. And why FRAMES? Well, because of our other podcast, Empty Frames, Lance. Oh, that's true. So you can get Empty Frames on there. You can get the creator commentary of Missing Moore Murray. And you can get the... Ad-free back catalog of Crawl Space as well. This is a lot of content. And it's not just our content. It is the extra exclusive content of many, many other true crime and all sorts of genre podcasts. True Crime Garage has a very popular show called Off the Record that they do on Stitcher Premium only. And uh, there are also a lot of comedy albums and, and things like that because of the Earwolf catalog that they bring to the table with Stitcher. So it's a really great listen. If you uh, have some driving to do, this is definitely something you want to do. Only four ninety nine a month, and you get the first month free by using the promo code FRAMES. Okay, so check out this interview with Jim Clemente, and we will be back at the end of it.
Okay, here we are on Missing More Amari. We are being joined by Jim Clemente. Jim, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Uh, sorry to be joining you on such a terrible topic, though. Yeah, it's it is one of the biggest head scratchers in the true crime community. Uh, Moore's disappearance, mostly because of all of the ins and outs and the the misinformation that's out there. All of the speculation, the community is huge, and it's a very passionate community. Before we get into that, though, can you just give our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, with you your your background in the FBI and in in law enforcement? I'll start a little before that. So I. I degree in chemistry, and then my law degree. I became a prosecutor for the city of New York. Then I became an FBI agent, and uh, 10 years in, I became an FBI profiler and did that for the last 12 years of my career. So my one of my specialties in the FBI was equivocal death investigation, and that is when you're trying to determine the manner of death. You may know the cause of death. That might be a gunshot wound. It might be exsanguination. It might be blood force trauma. But the manner of death is one of five things. Homicide, suicide, accident, natural, or undetermined. And although undetermined doesn't sound like an actual manner of death, it's it's meant for cases like you find um, a body on the ground in the middle of the desert and there are absolutely no marks on the body or the body is skeletonized and there's absolutely no information about what happened to this person and there is no way to get that information so that's why we have the undetermined category because there are deaths that occur where you have absolutely no information about it and unfortunately cases in which there's no body can also be undetermined. So you would have a case with no body, but you would be relatively certain that that person was deceased. Correct. So there's, you know, in civil law, if somebody's deceased without any sightings or any credible reason for them to be gone, you can get a court to actually make a determination. They're, they could be legally declared dead. Um, and you, you don't have a body. Uh, there are other cases where, for example, the circumstances under which they go missing um, indicate foul play, and then when they don't show up, it's a little bit more, you know, it's a little more easy to draw a line to, you know, that they were murdered, but since you don't have the body, um, you can still declare them dead. Yeah, you know, there's... There are cases, for example, where, you know, where there's a huge amount of blood at the person's house. There's indications of break-in and so forth, and and the person is gone. And the amount of blood that is found would be far more than was necessary to call, you know, to basically bleed out. So um, that in and of itself can, can be the basis of a determination that somebody was was murdered and their body was disposed of. So at that point, do you make an immediate decision that this person or within a certain, uh, you know, maybe a couple of days uh, before the body does not show up, do you make an immediate determination that that person is most likely deceased because of the amount of blood? Yeah, I mean, so most likely, yes, but you don't make a determination Okay. Until you do a full investigation. So you do a full equivocal death investigation. You do a full homicide investigation if you have, um, if you have the ability. So, you know, there's, you know, there's no um, absolute roadmap here. Every case is is essentially different. As with Mora's case, there isn't any sign of foul play. There is a single car accident. There's not significant damage to the car that would suggest that she was seriously injured at the scene. So without any evidence of her or any sign of her in the 15 years she's been missing, no credit card activity, cell phone activity, significant sighting, is there a time frame that just uh, that is an, is there an official time frame that's put on that where someone is officially classified as as deceased or is that more on law enforcement or the family to decide i think it's a it's actually a civil um 
judgment that can be made. So the family can apply in some areas as soon as five years after the person goes missing. And in some areas, it's longer. But certainly this amount of time, uh, there could be a legal presumption, and it would be up to the family to make the application to a court based on all the information that's known. You know, I mean, if we could discuss for a couple minutes the, you know, the facts of the case and what's more, most important, when you do an equivocal death investigation, you have to conduct what's called the psychological autopsy. And because you don't have the body, right, you can't actually make any determinations of what physically happened. But a psychological autopsy can help us understand what the state of mind of the person was. In other words, is are there indicators in their behavior in the days, weeks, months, and years even leading up to the disappearance that might shed some light on what happened um, and resulted in her being what looks like permanently missing. Yeah, it's really hard to say that anything leading up to her disappearance had anything to do with uh, her going missing. She was definitely under incredible stress. She had uh, recently crashed her dad's car, totaled it. Right. Um, she had recently found out some news about her sister who was in alcohol uh, recovery and she had just been picked up by her husband and driven straight to a liquor store before they went home. So there were a few, and, and she was in, an, in the nursing program at UMass. So there were there were some serious stressors there, and it seems like she left her dorm uh, to just get get out of town for a few days, kind of clear her head, and but right. she never got so, to her destination. Now, it's my understanding that she sent some notes or emails to a few people saying that she was going to be gone for a little while, right? Yeah, she had emailed her boyfriend, which seemed to be more of a reassuring type email saying she didn't feel like speaking to anybody at the time, but she would talk to him later on. There has been stories about their relationship being a bit strained, but they were still right. together at the time. And she had uh, she had emailed him that, and then she she proceeded to, for the most part, drain her bank account, and she hit the road. She also emailed her professors saying that there was a death in the family, and she was going to need some time off. That wasn't true, right? That's right. Right. There okay, was no so death in the family. Let's talk about those things because these are very these are all very informative behaviors. Um, so there there are a number of indicators that she wanted to go away. If, if she was simply going to take a week off, you know, when you say she drained her bank account, do you know how much she drained it of? It was $286. Okay, so she wasn't very well off. She didn't have, have you know, $200,000 in there that she could live off for the rest of her life. So that's correct. Clearly, that's not, that wouldn't be a possibility. Um, but, you know, that might be what something if she wanted to go away for a few days or a week or something that she could take and live off of. So that can give you a little bit of an indication of, you know, uh, you know, how long she was planning on going. And this thing about the death in the family, um, am I wrong that there was something going on about her mother having cancer or something like that? That, that is true. That's correct. Her mother was going through treatment, um, for cancer and she ended up she she passed away on Moore's birthday 2009 in 2009 believe. 5 years after she went missing right so all right but it's an additional stressor um and how old was Maura? she was 21 and i understand she also um had been recently caught using stolen credit cards there was a credit card number that had been floating around her dorm the owner of the credit card was the parents of one of her on the same dorm. One of the one of the women there uh, had this credit card number, and there was a there was a misconception, I guess, that she had stolen the credit card. It does seem like mm -hmm. the credit card number was written down and passed among students. Yeah, she was officially charged by UMass police with improper use of a credit card. Okay, 
right. And it was for it was for food. Uh, you you mentioned about how getting an indication of how long she intended on being away for. The items that were left in her car were things like textbooks, her birth control. There was. Uh, there were clo- there was clothing that suggested uh, you know a few nights maybe two or three nights there was uh hygiene products and it to me that suggests somebody who's going away for for a couple of days for the weekend and alcohol too she she definitely she did purchase alcohol and what what kind of alcohol yeah do you know we're not exactly sure what and how much um we think th- it might have been the ingredients to make a white russian but there was also a box mm-hmm. of wine, uh, and there was also, I think, a six packs, a six pack of Seagrams or something like that. But there's some conjecture because what she bought wasn't exactly consistent, I think, with what was found in her car. Right, that's so, accurate. What was found in the car was was not what, according to what she bought at the liquor store. So it's not officially out there. Right, and that's never been found, which is interesting. Well, that's interesting. So she bought some alcohol. Do you know what that was? Or that's what you just described. Yeah, we 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 think it was something to the effect of ingredients for a white Russian or a black Russian, a black it. Russian, um, something like a like a malt liquor, like a Seagram's, like a wine cooler or something. And what was found in her car was a box of Franzia wine, and that was open. So there's speculation, very strong indication that she had been sipping on that in her Diet Coke bottle when she was driving. Okay, and then the she had the car accident with her father's car three or four days earlier. That's right, a few days earlier, yeah. And and was she she from a party? Was she drunk then? She had been. She had come from a. I, I, the original story was that it was a party, and the more we looked into it, it wasn't so much a party as it was a gathering at a, a friend's dorm room. A few people. Uh, she wasn't of ever charged with drunk driving, so we don't really know. And the accident itself seemed more like she she might have hit ice or overcorrected trying to make the uh, make the turn at the at the T um, intersection. There was there was a bit of snow on the ground, and she just happened to hit the guardrail at the at the right angle where it actually totaled the car. It it bent the frame. So although it was really late at night, she the the officer who attended to her that that night drove her to her dad's motel where he was staying because he was there for the weekend and never filed any any uh, drunk driving charges on her. Got it. Well, all right. And that was so she may or may not have been drinking, but there was sort of some kind of gathering. So here's the thing. Um, there's a it's clear that she she was planning on going away for at least a period of time. Um, and what's interesting about that is, you know, what's the motivation behind that? Um, I mean, that's a critical determination to be made. And, for example, I'll just give you the opposite ends of the spectrums. One is that, yeah, she was so stressed out because so many things were going on in her life. She made up this lie about a death in the family uh, to excuse her absence. She kind of you know, hinted with her boyfriend that she wasn't, you know, uh, you know, wanting to talk and be around people at this point. Um, she had obviously been through a couple of things that were, you know, upsetting to her, the crash, her sister coming out of rehab and maybe getting right back into it. Um, so there's all sorts of, you know, as you said, stressors in her life. Um, you know, but, you know, a stressor, we, we make a determination in the behavioral analysis unit between a stressor and a trigger. Uh, a stressor is something more long-term and, and you know, builds up over time. And th- those things kind of, you know, um, that you describe uh, are, are, you know, they're, they're not long-term thing. I think, for example, the mother being diagnosed with cancer, that would be a long-term stressor. I mean, it, it, the mother ended up passing away after four or five years, right? So, it, it, those things, those long-term things can add stress and they build over time. And there may be other things that we don't know about that were stressful in life. I mean, her nursing, schooling, was she doing exceptionally well? Was this really taxing on her? Were the hours long? And was she falling apart as a result of that? Do you know anything about that? We just know it's, it's one of the most stressful um, classes, you know, courses in the country. 
So I'm sure she was very stressed out by it. But by all accounts, she was a great student. She had just transferred from West Point. So she had uh, even a little bit of a military background um, at West Point. She transferred from West Point? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Getting in West Point means that she was exceptional in terms of, uh, you know, academics and physical and, you know, moral standards. Yep. Uh, West Point is very, very difficult to get into. Um, but transferred from, I, I would like to know why. Why did she leave that? Um, um, any ideas? Well, the story of her transfer from was the incident where she was caught shoplifting a, a piece of... Um, it's like makeup lipstick or, something. or or yeah it was it was a small item of makeup that she was caught mm-hmm. uh shoplifting and a lot of theories go into that where she she did that in order to get out of West Point but uh she was put before the disciplinary uh, board which is where she met her boyfriend Bill Rausch who was uh who was a, also a cadet there at West Point and she is dismissed from West Point I guess you could say dismissed and she enrolls in the nursing program at UMass Okay. All right. Well, you know, I just do you do you know did she have any um, medical diagnoses during this time, or did she seek any counseling? Did she get any psychological diagnoses at this time? No, not that we know of. Yeah, there's been nothing that anybody's told us about that. Okay. So again, I was talking about the difference between a stressor and a trigger. Trigger is something that happens that sort of abrupt and can, you know, be life-changing. It can, it can set somebody on a different path. And for example, the car crash could have been that, the sister, the, the combination or the accumulation of things, the mother's diagnosis, the car crash, the sister, you know, uh, maybe relapsing, whatever. Um, all those things might have been triggering events that told her, I got to get away. You also don't know what was going on in her mind. Um, early 20s is a time when, um, unfortunately, people who, um, who experience schizophrenia typically have, you know, uh, initial incidents. And it can be very, very disorienting, you know, when something starts to go wrong with your brain and you don't understand it, and it's your experience. You, you you experience things as real. That could be paranoia. That could be other people talking to you. That could be feeling like you're different people, and so on and so forth. And so anytime that I hear something about somebody that's in their early 20s, I you know always have to keep that in the back of my mind because it causes people to radically change their behavior. And it could be very spotty. It can do... It can be, you know, appearing 100% fine most of the time, but then there are incidents where things go awry. And so we should keep that in the back of our minds. I'm not saying I can't obviously diagnose her or whatever, but that's part of sort of the psychological autopsy. Something actually motivated her to do this sort of I got to get away thing. And she did it in, in isolation. She didn't tell anybody about it. So um, think about that. Like if she was really in this relationship and it was going well, would she have shared that with her brother? Would she have shared it with her, her sister? You know, is the fact that she um, that she felt separated from her boyfriend and her sister already had her own problems to deal with, did that cause her to feel like I got to deal with this on my own? I need to get away. Um, of course, it's also possible on the other end of that spectrum that there was some other motivating factor. In other words, somebody could have, I mean, I'm just I'm giving you like a, a wild hypothetical. Somebody could have forced her to do that. In other words, you know, go get your stuff because I have some threat that I'm hanging over your head and I, you need to, you know, grab a few things, get some money, and we're going on a road trip, but there's absolutely no indication of another person. Um, It could be something in her mind that told her, some paranoia that she had that told her she needed to get away, make an excuse and get away. Um, Any of those things are possibilities. What we want to look at is what is the most likely probability. That's what you want to determine in this kind of a case. And, to me, there's enough 
stressors and triggers and behavior to say that she most likely, of her own accord, decided to get away, but didn't have the means or really give any indication that this was long-term and permanent. So what could have happened was she could have gotten to a point where she got away and then fell into either an accidental death or somebody decided that they wanted to take advantage of her. Um, the situation that might lead to an accidental death would be, you know, she gets out of her car, uh, she's, um, she's drinking, she's, she could be, you know, looking for a place to relieve herself. I don't know if it's a very rural area. So she could, uh, am I right that somebody, a bus driver or something, asked her if she was okay and she said she's fine? Yep. Yeah, so her car spins off the road. It it clips a snowbank around a uh, nearly hairpin turn and ends up sort of hung up off of a off in the snow and off the side of the road, sort of half in the road, half out. It's a uh, it's a it's a very small area, but the the location where her car was found was within 200 yards of four houses that had a uh, either a slightly obstructed view of it or a direct view of it, including the bus driver who backed his bus in right up the road and called 911 and directly across the street were the, the Westman family. And that's uh, the police dispatch logs show the time frame in which Faith Westman called and described the scene to dispatch in uh, Haverhill. All right, so she's had two accidents in four days, is that correct? Yep, yes. Definitely drinking this time, it appears. Well, not definitely appears. It appears that she's been drinking this time. It does appear that she was drinking at this time. Okay. And you said something about snow. So snow has some really good benefits in this situation. That is, you can follow footprints in the snow. Was it snowing on the ground, or was there just some banks of snow and she slid into it? Do you have any idea? Based on the accident report, the roads were clear. It had snowed, so there were snow banks. And you could say just looking at the pictures, the snow banks were probably anywhere from three feet to four feet tall, depending on where. Maybe a little less, maybe, maybe two. Yeah, I mean, you know, you got to account for the, the, the plows uh, creating right. those snow banks. There was just fresh fallen snow. Right, there was fresh fallen snow uh, that had happened within the last, like, maybe few hours of I would say maybe that night or something, or the previous night. Okay, so so is that the case? Um, did, did they did they make an attempt to follow her footsteps away from the car? They d- they did, and they found that there were no footprints going into anywhere around the car. But we know that she got out of the car, right? That's right. Yep. Okay. How and weird we, that there were no footprints. Yeah, there were there. There she was, levitated out of the car. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, well going, she must have walked on the street, I yeah. guess. Uh, that's the only explanation. Uh, she did not go into the woods, which were on the side of her car. Um, there, there was a couple little rural uh, roads she potentially could have walked up. They searched around a little bit, but they did not find anything that they believe were her tracks. Right. I, I'm sorry. I should have been more clear about that. There, there was obvious signs of a person that had gone around her car and in the dispatch logs, Faith Westman did say that she saw some activity uh, around the trunk of the car. And Butch Atwood said that, well, he has two accounts. He said that she was in the car. And then his other account was that she had to hold herself up because she was a little shaken up from the accident. She had to use the car to hold herself up. So uh, she she was definitely around the car. But the the searches that were con- conducted that night and, and since then, the subsequent searches found nothing going into the woods. Right, so she could have been holding herself up for two reasons: shaken up by the accident, and she was she may have been inebriated. So that may have been one reason. I mean, he wouldn't have been able to tell that. Um, you know, he didn't know that that there was a, a wine box open and that she seems to have been drinking it. Right. Um, but anyway, the point is that it looks more likely that she walked up down the road. And that she walked into the woods is what you're telling me. It seems so, yeah. In that case, um, my feeling would be that, A, 
um, she was picked up by someone and they did something to her and got rid of her body because uh, unless it was somebody who who was from far away um, who drove her out of town and got rid of her body outside of town, um, it would seem generally when somebody does something like that, I mean, nobody would have known that she would have had an accident there. I, I assume there was no calls from her cell phone from that location. There's no cell service now, and there was no cell service in 2004. She did say to Butch Atwood that she was going to call her. She called AAA, and that's why he knew that she was probably lying in that that circumstance because he was aware that there was no cell service. Um, Got it. You did mention something that, and this is something that's really interesting, and I don't know with the um, with the information that you have, you you mentioned that she was probably picked up by somebody. So I guess that leads us to break that down into was she picked up by a local or was she picked up by a transient person? And because there's never been any sighting of her, something happened with her body. We've introduced another person. Did that person do something? Uh, did he? Did that person murder her and dispose of the body, or? Is she is is she being held captive, much like the case in Ohio with uh, with Castro? Now, what, what is is that a common thing? And what is the what is the profile of a person who is a local who would take advantage of that situation? Well, this is what I was getting at. The fact is, nobody could have known and planned that she would be alone and available and vulnerable at that particular time and place. Right. It would have to have been an impulsive act by someone who happened to be there. And it could be somebody that was local who found her, saw her, took, took advantage of the fact that she was out there in the middle of nowhere with nobody to help her. I don't know what, what the traffic is on that particular road. It's not very heavy. It was it was a Monday night at about seven thirty. Butch Atwood said that when he was uh, in his he, he was in his bus, he he made the or his wife made the phone call to nine one one, and he said when he was looking at the road, whether it was from his porch or his bus, he said he saw a few cars go by, but nothing that stopped, and there, there it certainly wasn't more Saturn that went by, but he didn't see anything that was out of the ordinary. All right, what kind of bus? Is it a school bus or is it a bus bus? Oh, a school bus. I'm sorry. So he parks it at his home and then takes it into the school in the morning. And then uh, is this is this uh, road anywhere near or the approach to a highway or off a highway? Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty close. It's like ten minutes to the highway. Um, uh, yeah, it's actually kind of right in the middle of two highways. Probably twenty minutes to another highway. All right, but ten minutes and twenty minutes. Um, is is a long way to stray off a highway. In other words, yes. if, if this was a road where, you know, where, you know, you're on a highway going across country or, or across state and, you know, there's a sign for services or, you know, McDonald's or something like that. Um, and on one of the service roads to that highway, um, this occurred, then, then the highway is actually a real factor. Right. Um, and 10 minutes off a highway you know, if it's if it's a thirty mile an hour zone is is five miles, and that's you know pretty damn far. It's not uh, you know if you were looking at it the other way. In other words, uh, you know somebody committed a crime at a house at this location. It's only ten minutes of the highway. They could have gone you know sixty miles in one hour. They could have been you know sixty miles away one hour after that crime. Uh, that's a different analysis but for somebody to have strayed quote off the highway to just randomly come in contact with this person mora um yeah that that doesn't seem like a real high probability so i would put my money on uh somebody local or one thing that's kind of a hybrid is somebody who knows the area who knew who grew up there let's say or spent time there and now moved away that kind of person is much more likely to be 
you know, sort of not only knowing the area, um, knowing that they could take advantage because there are very few cars that go by and then being in a position to now, because they don't actually live in this area, they've moved away being in a position to take her outside of this area. And clearly if she was killed, not only did they conceal the body, they did a pretty damn good job at permanent concealment. Um, people, people who do that typically because it makes them, in other words, if they're going to do permanent concealment, usually it takes time. And usually if somebody kills somebody, they want to distance themselves from the victim as quickly as possible because the more time they spend with the victim, the more likelihood that they can get caught. So somebody who wants to spend enough time to um, actually do something that would result in permanent concealment, uh, dismembering, uh, you know, uh, burying in a, in a deep grave, things like that. The time it takes to do that, the risk associated with the time it takes to do that, typically they only do that if there's some kind of known relationship between the offender and the victim. In other words, that somebody saw them together or somebody knew they were together, and therefore they want to delay the discovery of the body so that or prevent the discovery of the body. So nobody, so they have time to get away and nobody associates them with this crime. That's, uh, that's, that's really good stuff. That's really fascinating stuff. And it leads me to my next question. Someone who does this, do you look for a history of violence in their past? And do you also look for an escalation of violence after the incident? Well, those are two very, very different things. Okay. Yes, I would expect uh, there could be uh, a history of violence or other indicators of violence. And, you know, we always used to talk about the homicidal triad, you know, uh, fire setting and uresis and cruelty to an animals. Um, we revised that list to include about 20 things now that are indicators of violence. Um, you can probably look that up on the net um but i, I you know i don't want to give away all of that but um if it's out there you can find it uh but the point is that it's not necessarily those three things in somebody's childhood but um there can be an escalation uh let's just give you an example um the golden state killer he started as the visalia ransacker and the visalia ransacker then stopped ransacking. He was breaking into homes, about a hundred homes, um, you know, taking things of little value, little trinkets or other souvenirs. And he was going through women's underwear drawer and masturbating on underwear and things like that. Then he stopped. Totally separately, there was the East Area Rapist, and he raped at least 50 women. And totally separately, there was the original Night Stalker down in Southern California. The first two crime sprees were in Northern California. The last one was in Southern California. Turns out it was all the same person. If I was doing the profile of the Visalia Ransacker, I would say these are precursor crimes. That this person probably started out peeping and fantasizing about women, eventually learned how to break into houses, uh, was doing these crimes and fantasizing about them, and it consumes his life. I mean, it's just everything he thinks about. And he is going to increase in the severity of his crimes and may lead to becoming a rapist or a murderer. That's exactly the path that this guy took. So um, in the case of um, Moore Murray, if somebody did just happened to come upon her on the street and maybe they were you know a kind looking person who didn't threaten her at all and they said hey you know why don't you get in i'll drive you to you know the gas station i'll take you to you know you want to I mean, the motel whatever if you need a place to stay you know or i can help you out or i can take you to you know report the accident or get you a tow truck whatever any number of things they might have used and part of that may have been that they actually did intend to help her out 
but at some point it got to the point where she, you know, became, you know, a victim where they felt like she was vulnerable and they could take advantage of that. And, um, and they did. Uh, I do not believe that in this day and age that it is possible for somebody to stay off the grid who had no training to do so, who, who had absolutely no way of becoming sort of this, you know, incredibly successful uh, disappearing artist. She does not seem to have any of those skills in her background. Um, and I wouldn't expect that she'd be able to pull that off. Yeah. So unfortunately, I believe that she met, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, decided to take advantage of her and was violent and ended up killing her. Now, um, real quick, what about proximity? Wait, what was the second part? Yeah, you said there was oh. a second part. Oh, you, you, uh, you kind of answered it. It was the escalating uh, violence after. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, no, I didn't answer it yet. Okay. So, so um, how somebody responds after committing, let's say, a threshold crime, the first crime of that nature and that degree, um, it can be very different. I mean, some people completely shut down after that. They, they, they go away. They go as far away as they can. They, they try to hide, whatever. And they don't come back until, you know, things calm down. Uh, those unsophisticated offenders, those impulsive offenders typically do, do something like that. Somebody who thinks about it, who fantasizes about it, who's been, you know, escalating, building this kind of behavior over time, like the Visalia Ransacker, right? That kind of person might just get charged up by it and continue to repeat that pattern. So in this case, though, I think this was an impulsive act. I don't think that it was a compulsive thing that was driven by, you know, this, uh, you know, plan, this long term plan uh, or, you know, this kind of behavior that escalated over time. So in this case, I would think that, that the person probably got scared by what happened, uh, probably got very lucky that they were able to achieve permanent concealment and um, and may not have done this ever again. Wow. What about proximity? Do you think if, if, if she was abducted that the person um, might have not lived in the immediate area? Or uh, does that yeah, have... Yeah, that's what I said. I mean, it could have been somebody who used to live there who, who moved away, who was back visiting or driving through and found her. That could have been... But it's also just keep in mind that like two of the rules are of, you know, if you're going to kill somebody, two of the major rules are you don't want to leave the body close to where you live. And yet you want to get away from the body as soon as possible. So typically, if they're going to move a a victim from one location to another, they move the victim to a place that they're more secure in and they have more privacy. So they have control, security, privacy in that location. So they then want to move the victim away from there. And they're balancing the amount of time they're spending with this victim, you know, after the victim is dead with the need to get them as far away from their known location as possible so that the body, if it's found, won't be associated with them. Okay, so so you're saying that the chances that this abductor lived very close, like within eyesight of where she went, or missing, one time lived, right, is is pretty low, I guess. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying they could have lived there at one time, could have been back visiting there, or they could have lived there and took her further away so that they could conceal the body and it won't be associated with her. Okay, if the body was found right there, right in that neighborhood. I would say it's probably somebody from outside who came by, killed her, and went back to where they were going. But if the body isn't found in that area, then what I'm thinking is, you know, this is somebody that probably was driving through there because they normally drive through there, and that's either near their home or they're where they used to live, where they have some ties that they continue to visit, either for work or for relationships, and and then went back to wherever they are, they are now, and did whatever they had to do, and then moved the body away from that place a certain distance that they felt comfortable with. 
that makes a, a lot of sense and and it's really it's really refreshing to hear these thoughts coming from uh, a very unbiased standpoint like your, yourself. We know that you've got to run. You have, uh, you have very important things to do. We appreciate you coming on here, and we want to be respectful of your time. So uh, can we do this again and get a little bit and, and dig a little bit deeper on this? Because I've learned, I've learned a ton in this 42 minutes. Well, if you can you know, provide me with more details, then I'll have more to tell you. Okay, Lance, here we are after the Jim Clemente interview. How'd you think it went? I think it started off a little intimidating. Jim does move at a pace that we're just not that familiar with, and I believe it ended very well, though. He got warmed up, we got warmed up to him, and he delivered us some very insightful information. Yeah, definitely, and uh, still a little intimidating all through, all throughout, and uh I thought it was interesting when we were talking about could this be a local, you know, I, it was a little confusing at first, I think, to hear what he was saying about that or to really comprehend what he meant with that. So I so I, I guess I asked him to reiterate it and it made more sense uh, hearing it again that this could be a person who lives very close to where Mora went missing. Right. Based on his history as a profiler for the FBI, we presented him the scenario of a, of if someone did kidnap Mora and do something to her, could it be a local or could it be a transient? And he went through uh, the scenarios and sort of the factors of what would contribute to that, like highways close by and close to you and I. That's not close in his profiling mind. It's, I thought that was interesting. That I did not think that was where he was going with right. that. I thought he was going to be like, "Well, it could be anyone because it's close to a highway." But he was saying the opposite that it's not that close to a highway. It's not like it's right off the ramp or something like that. It's several minutes away. You really, it, you wouldn't just find yourself in that spot if you just happen to be traveling through. Right. The the odds of that happening far are, are far less than what he ends up telling us which is someone who's from the area or someone very familiar with the area who had been back there you know if it was someone who maybe owned a cabin there or something and they frequented the area a lot but they weren't actual residents but familiar enough where you haven't found a body or trace of anything so they knew what to do with it they knew the area it was interesting getting into this conversation and I think beneficial for us to get into this conversation with a professional like him who wasn't 100% prepped on Moore's case. So he had no bias going into this and I think it was maybe unintentional <clears throat> I think it was maybe subconsciously intentional on our part to not present him the fine details of this because we wanted to hear how an outsider with a professional background like that, would view the circumstances around Moore's disappearance. It was refreshing to have to explain to an FBI profiler what kind of bus Butch Atwood drives. He didn't He didn't know. So you know he's not coming from a, a area of bias. Yeah, he kind of seemed to consider Butch Atwood at first and then kind of moved past him. It's I like guess. he just checked off these things on his list and was like, no, 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 no. Okay, mm -hmm. what's next? Yeah. Or I guess Butch might even kind of fit the profile because he did leave the area, um, went to Florida, right? And that was kind of what he was talking about, right? Yeah, and you and I talked about this when we were listening to the recording again. There's many people. Butch does fit that profile. But he didn't leave it. It wasn't like he left immediately. And you said we asked him about the person who might have abducted her, but he came to the conclusion that she was likely abducted. We didn't really lead him, I don't think, at all. Um, like you said, we went through the kind of the process of explaining the case a little bit uh, in brief to him, and he got there himself. I think he just needed to know and make the connection that there's been no credible sighting, no cell phone ping, there's been nothing of her existing past that night. Mm -hmm. which would lead him to go to abduction. And it's very mathematical, the way he put it together. Yeah, he said it was probably a uh, an impulsive act, not a compulsive act. So not like something that was planned, but yet an opportunity that someone took. And probably not someone who had acted before or necessarily since. 
and he presents very credible, realistic, logical reasons why they might not have escalated their violence after this particular act. It's a really interesting interview, and really take a step back when you listen to it and think about it from an outsider's point of view, from an FBI profiler's point of view, having no personal connections or ties to this. Yeah, and he was talking about the person potentially being scared and lucky, and that sounds about right. So I think that's interesting. Lucky, I would say for sure. Uh, scared, obviously, we don't know, but it's not like there were a string of serial murders around. You know what I mean? So it's like, like his profile kind of said, this is this is could very well be a person who didn't act again on those impulses or hasn't been presented with an opportunity similar since then. And was lucky, yes, but smart enough to identify that they were lucky. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And got the body away from them. If they were a local in that immediate vicinity, that was kind of uh, compelling talking about that. Also, I wanted to talk about one of the things we mentioned in the beginning of the interview, which was Maura's mom, Lori Murray, being sick with cancer. And he said that that was an added stressor. And so we actually got some information from Curtis Murray after this interview. We never really realized how perhaps prevalent that was in Maura's mind when she left UMass. It feels like two separate conversations that we have. Maura disappearing and Maura's family dealing with her mom's cancer. What Curtis had said to us was that it wasn't very long prior to Maura going missing that his mother was diagnosed with cancer. And then when we asked him further, do you think that might have been a trigger, he immediately responded and said, of course, if it shocked her as much as it did me when he found out. So he he would absolutely say that that was a trigger. And then he says that their mom was going through aggressive chemo and radiation, caused her to lose a tremendous amount of weight very quickly. So not just the diagnosis that Maura learns about, perhaps she saw some of the uh, how how that affected the body and the difference between her mom then and and her mom after the diagnosis and and the beginning stages of this aggressive treatment. She had just gotten back to UMass a week or two before she went missing. And so, yeah, I would imagine she spent some time over that holiday break with her mom. And it could go to the phone call with Kathleen. So it might not just be exclusively Kathleen saying, I fell off the wagon. It could have been Kathleen saying that. And then they start talking about their mom. And Curtis said that Maura had so much going on in her life at that point. It wasn't just the men in her life, probably not even a factor to her. She had pressure from school, feeling bad about her crashing her dad's car, problems with her mom's health, uh, Kathleen. So there's a, a number of things that Curtis said. She, it's no wonder she needed to go and have a reset. And if you consider the amount of alcohol she bought and after hearing that news and, and dealing with that reality, the amount of alcohol isn't as weird, I feel like. Especially if you're considering going away for a weekend and you're stocking up. It, it feels like a six-pack would just be enough for maybe a night or two. A lot of people have dealt with family members, and speaking personally, like my, you know, I, I had a, a family member diagnosed with cancer and you do sometimes turn to alcohol and other substances to get you by. Exactly. And other things in your life that you're doing, also from personal experience, don't feel as important or meaningful after you hear that news. You're very willing to drop something that you've been working on that doesn't seem like it matters at all until you until you process what's happened and you and you can and you can handle it and move move forward with it. So that that was where she was at. And I think it's unfair if anybody is still hanging on to that one thing. What set her off? Was it running from the men in her life? Was it Kathleen? You have to understand the all of the all of the factors that were coming in. All of the stressors and this enormous one, uh, possibly having seen some effects of her mom's disease and uh, probably grasping the reality that her mom wasn't going to be with her very much longer. Yeah, yeah. And that was something that we didn't really even expect to get into too in depth with Jim. But when he started talking about the stressors and the triggers, it really started to click. Never really consciously thought of it as being 
that big of a moment, I guess, because Lori died five years after. You kind of don't really uh, connect the two. But here we just learned that she was diagnosed shortly before Maura went missing. So, yeah, I would say that's that and in Curtis's words. Yes, that's absolutely a stressor. Yeah, it's a real no brainer when you think about that. It's also really cool to think about 90 episodes later, still learning things and still learning in general, because we had heard about the mom, like you said, and it's five years after her disappearance. And the only thing that really was uh, a standout for me was that her mom died on her birthday. And but I think that's what blocked me from thinking about was this a trigger in the first place because it the the odds of her dying on the birthday were so tragic and sad that I just got hung up on that. So it doesn't matter, you know. So many people are like, how many episodes could you do on this? What use is other than talking about it? We have a we have a guy on who's an FBI profiler and it jogs this thing in our head and all of a sudden we're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think you could argue this information is some of the most important information that's been put out there in the case. Coming up on Missing Maura Murray, we have one more episode before the end of the year, Lance, and we are talking with a podcast favorite, Marissa Jones of The Vanished Podcast. Mm-hmm. 